Hi, guys. <laughs> Happy Friday. Um, before I introduce our speaker today, I want to make sure um, I tell you guys that the content today will be very sensitive. So if you do need to take a breather or step out, we do have counselors in the back during chapel and after chapel. Okay? Um, so I wanted to make sure you guys know that. Uh, this chapel speaker, there's so much to her, I, I had to put it on a piece of paper um, and try to condense it as best that I can. All right. Nicole Braddock Bromley is a founder and director of One Voice. She is the author of three books, Breathe, Soar, and Hush, and, the, and an international activist on the issues of child sexual abuse, sexual assault, and human trafficking. In 2010, she was the first person in history to hold a public forum on sexual abuse and trafficking, trafficking in East Africa, speaking alongside not only the First Lady of Uganda, but also the Kenyan Supreme Court justices. In 2012, she went undercover in the brothels of Cambodia with a film crew to expose child sex trafficking. And in 2014, she founded a nonprofit called One Voice for Freedom that stops child sex slavery around the world. For 15 years, Nicole has traveled extensively as a voice of awareness and prevention to some of the most at-risk populations around the world, as well as some of the most prestigious colleges and universities. Her voice has been heard on TV, radio programs, she has podcasts, she has books that are changing the lives and impacting people around us. We are happy to have her here with us today. It is my honor and please join me in welcoming the amazing, the inspirational, <laughs> Nicole Braddock-Bromley. Ah, that's funny, thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs> I feel like I should have entered with like round off back handspring or something, that was awesome. Okay, I don't need two mics, so I'm gonna turn that off or just lay it there, thank you. Well, I'm not sure where y'all are from, whether you come from a big city, a small town, if you're anything like me, you come from a really, really, really small town. Uh, the place I'm from in Ohio, we had one street light, we had one store, we had more cows than we had people. <laughs> you know, I don't know your background, whether you come from a big family, a small family, a single parent home, maybe you never knew your parents at all. Uh, I don't know your dreams, your values, your fears, we could be the two most different people in the world. But um, what I'm here to share with you today, I think, spans all borders, identities, relationships, speaks in the universal language of human emotion. And so as I share some stories with you this morning in chapel and other stories throughout the day, um, I think you'll discover that we aren't so different after all. I want to begin by having you imagine with me a 12-year-old girl with long brown hair, hazel eyes, and a big heart encircling the name Zach Morris on her left hand. And every day after school, this little girl, she would run up the gravel driveway to her house, throw her lunchbox on the table, go to the freezer to get a big bowl of ice cream, and go sit on the hot pink beanbag um, in the red carpet in her room, and her walls were covered in posters of ballerinas, basketball players, and the new kids on the block. I know I'm 20 years removed from ENC, but the new kids are making a comeback, so you better watch out. Um, so at home, you know, she was really involved in school. She, you know, was an athlete. She was student council president. She was homecoming queen on the weekends. She would go to her church. Um, and then go to her cousin's house to play Nintendo. You know, she grew up very involved, um, very known. In some ways, she was like the poster child of her small community. It was a, um, you know, everyone looked at her as if, you know, she had it all together. And at home, things seemed just as perfect. She lived with her mom and her stepdad. 
Her mom worked from home. They were very close. Her stepdad was self-employed. They spent a lot of time together doing father-daughter activities. And then uh, she also had a stepsister who was exactly five months and five days younger than her, and they were best friends. Perfect family, perfect girl, perfect life. Now I want you to imagine that same little girl wishing she were someone else. Uh, imagine her planning out a runaway from home. Imagine her planning her own funeral. The same girl, you know, perfect neighborhood, not afraid of strangers. She was afraid to come home each and every day. She often had nightmares. She often woke up crying. Why the nightmares? Why the crying? Well, she cried because she was miserable, and she was miserable because she had a secret. I was the girl who came to school every day with the biggest smile on her face. But I was the same girl who was afraid inside. I had a secret. I wasn't sure why I had to keep it. I do know that I will never forget the summer. It was 1994. I was 14 years old, looking forward to my freshman year of high school. And I already told you we lived way out in the country and we had lots of cows. Well, um, in our town, everyone owned lots of land and um, they didn't have to mow it because their cows ate their grass. So you're going to think I'm a huge hillbilly right now, which is fine. I watched some of y'all walk in, so we're good. But Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Um, but anyways, so I, when I was like 9 or 10 years old, my stepdad taught me how to drive this huge tractor with like a mower blade that you had attached separately on the back. And we didn't have cows, so I had to do the job of mowing all of these fields at my house um, on the weekend. So I remember it was really nice outside and I decided I was going to get a tan while I mowed. So I put my bathing suit on and I was out there maybe 15 minutes or so when I saw my stepdad coming toward me with a glass of lemonade. So I stopped my tractor <laughs> and I waited for him to reach me. And now um, I remember I, I drank the entire glass of lemonade and I thanked him. And the next thing that I'm going to tell you um, was weird and I will never forget it. So my stepdad wasn't looking me in the eyes, he was looking me over, and a woman knows when she's being objectified, and that's exactly how I felt at like 11, 12 years old by my stepdad. Then he made this comment that was totally off the wall and disgusting, and so I took off, and I kept driving and, and doing my job of the mowing and all of that, and then a little bit later, he started coming back out of the house again with another glass of lemonade, and I waved him back to the house, said I didn't want anything. Now, I looked up, and about 15 minutes later, I saw him on our front deck staring at me with binoculars. And I remember I tried to drive where there were trees so he couldn't see me, um, but he didn't put them down. He followed me with them wherever I was driving. I remember I wanted to end my life right then and there. I didn't want to deal with this harassment, this torment. It wasn't the first time something like this had happened. And so I started crying. And I was trying to drive where there were trees. And, um, and as I was driving around, I decided I was going to put the tractor into the highest gear and drive head on into this huge tree that was at the very end of our field, right at the edge of this big drop-off. And I was certain that this is how I was going to end my, uh, my life. I wanted to end it right then and there because I couldn't think of anything else to do. And the last second I thought of my mom, how much that this would hurt her, and so I swerved. And obviously my life did not end that day, but neither did this torment. It was supposed to be one of the happiest summers of my life. We were going on this dream vacation, my family, my mom, my stepdad, my stepsister, and I. And I remember getting on the airplane and just fantasizing about all the great memories we were going to make as a family. 
only to come back with some of the worst ones of my life. And I remember even my mom noticed that my stepdad had been very different this trip. He and I were swimming in the ocean. As I came back to the beach where my mom was laying, she kept asking me what was wrong. But as always, I said I would just tell her later. Well, I remember feeling like all of the strange things that were happening and feeling so uncomfortable and awkward and confused by the, the words and the looks and the touches that were happening and wondering why no one ever talked about these things. And I remember coming home from that vacation and feeling so jumbled up inside. And my mom and I were in a car. It was a week after we had gotten home. And I wanted so badly to talk to somebody about all these things that I had been going through and the feelings that I had. But I didn't know how. So my mom and I were in the car, and we were going to go pick up my stepsister and bring her home with us for the weekend. And our conversation started off as it normally did about each other's day, and then all of a sudden it was silent. I remember the traffic light turned red, and the car stopped. And as we waited for the light to turn green, I just kept fantasizing about what it was going to be like to tell my mom about these things that had been going on. So the light turned green, my mom hit the accelerator, we were late, it was hot outside, I was sweating, my stomach was tied up in knots, and then all of a sudden, I just told her. She slammed on the brakes, and she pulled the car over to the side of the road, and it was the first time in my life I knew it was wrong. And then she asked me if he ever touched me. I was, you know, I was unsure if it was even my fault. You know, no one ever talked about things like this. And so my mom quickly said, as I shared all these memories that I'd had, things I'd never spoken about my whole entire life, things that had been going on for almost 10 years of my childhood, um, I began to understand something that I'd never understood before. You know, that I had been a victim of childhood sexual abuse. And childhood sexual abuse seems like such an obscure crime, you know, but that's because it is still often kept a secret. You know, did he ever touch me? My mom asked that question in the car, and then I started having all these memories flying back in my mind. I remembered a summer vacation just two years earlier before I entered junior high. It was another scene on the beach, another scene on the water. Just like the summer of 94, it was a, another family vacation I wanted to forget. Swimming in the ocean, like any real normal kid would do on a vacation, you know, being touched under my bathing suit. I remember his words that time he said, do you want to go up to the hotel room? I said, no, I want to swim. He said, do you, want to, um, do you want to just go right now? We don't have to tell anyone. And I said, no, I want to go and lay in the sand. He said, we'll keep it our little secret. I pulled away from him that time. And he punished me by not speaking to me for the rest of the day. And it was the same vacation, the same night. I remember telling my mom everything in this car ride. He told me he needed to get some things out of our van. It was just beginning to get dark. You know, it wasn't always like this. And so, of course, I wanted to be helpful, and I went. He told me to hop in the back seat and look for a cooler. He hopped in the back seat, too. He said, sit up straight and don't move around. And then it happened again with the touching. And I remember feeling so scared, but he always said that I was special. He told me that if I loved him, I would let him. You know, I didn't really know what to say when my mom asked the question in that car that day, other than to say yes. Um, but now looking back, I know that that moment was such a turning point in my life. 
it marked a beginning and it marked an end and it was the beginning of a new journey for me realizing that sexual abuse happens to so many more children than just me you know now i know that one in every three girls and one in every six boys are sexually abused by the time they turn 18. You know, it cuts across all boundaries, male, female, Christian, non-Christian, black, white, rich, poor. You know, those kids have names, those kids have faces. My mom got really quiet. I remember in the car she was holding back tears and suddenly she just said, I don't know what we're going to do, but I'm going to figure it out. Well, that was Friday night. We picked up my stepsister who was already outside waiting for us. We brought her home for the weekend. When she returned back to her mom's house on Monday, my mom and I left our home. My mom reported the abuse and we were told that my stepdad had denied everything and we were supposed to go to court in a month, which would have been the first day of my freshman year of high school. The days that followed were the most frightening days of my life. I, I believed if he found us, he was going to kill us. Um, he was trying to call every place we were hiding, friends and family's houses, trying to talk to us. And I was really, really scared. And I remember the first, um, it was the Thursday of that week, we went, for a, um, we went to my grandma's house. And it was a really scary time for me because he was trying to, to find us. And so um, I was tired of sleeping in attics and basements. And I told my mom, could we go for a quick walk around the block? And... She agreed, and so my mom, my grandma, and I, we were walking down the street. It was so nice to be outside in the sun, and all of a sudden I look up and I saw my stepdad's big blue van driving towards us on the street. So I yelled at my mom and grandma to run because it was him, um, which, rest in peace, Margaret. I mean, her running style, my grandma, not your getaway partner. <laughs> I'm saying, like, she is not the one you're going to pick, probably, if you're trying to get away. So um, we were running. It was like a dead chicken somehow keeping up with us, behind us, like crazy. I'm not even joking. It was crazy. And my mom always says, God was protecting us this during this season, Nicole. And I will tell you, that day, I know it's true, because we were running for a library. It was around the corner, and somehow we made it, and somehow Grandma Margaret made it with us. And um, we were safe. He didn't find us. Um, the next week, on a Tuesday, we went to stay with some friends, and the dad and his took his kids and me to the mall. And as we returned to their house, I saw a police car leave in the driveway. I thought it was really strange. So when I walked in, my mom was really quiet, and she was sitting at the dining room table, and I knew something was wrong as soon as I walked in. I said, what's wrong, Mom? Why are the police here? She said, he shot himself. I said, he's dead. She said, yeah. And I remember running around that house just screaming, I hate him, I hate him, I hate him. You know, I was so furious that after 10 years of being molested in my home and holding his secret, all of these years I finally found the courage to break my silence. I was so scared of what my life was going to look like after I told his secret. Here he took this way out. You know, I wanted to see justice here on earth, and I felt like he stole that away from me. I felt like he took this easy way out that I would no longer get justice. And that's where I was at that moment in my life. And so at that moment, that marked moment, one week, exactly one week after I told my secret, I broke my silence, I vowed I am never going to tell anyone again. I want to just bury this pain and just move on. And it wasn't easy. You know, I went back to school. I was a high school freshman. My mom became a college freshman at Mount Vernon Nazarene University. And 
you know, it was still an uphill battle. I had nightmares, I had flashbacks. Kids at school started calling me daddy's girl. But I will say, looking back, I knew that telling my secret was the first step to healing, and I needed to do that. But I felt alone. I felt dirty, damaged, ashamed. I felt like everything was my fault, and I was afraid of what people would think about me if they knew, if they knew what I had gone through in my life. And so I, I vowed that I wouldn't tell again. And to this day, you know, I still can't remember exactly when or how it all started, but I do remember when I was in fifth grade, there was a lady from the sheriff's department that came to our school and showed us a video about child sexual abuse and, and rape. And I remember watching this cartoon and thinking to myself, this really seems a lot like what's happening to me, you know. But I'm sitting on the library floor with all my little fifth grade friends and my boyfriend, Chucky. Chucky, he was like tiny. He was like a little teddy bear. We were the weirdest looking couple alive, like... Obviously, we didn't make it. Like, we were super awkward. Um, but he was so cute. Like, right now, I want him to be, like, my little child. But I don't know where he's at. Who knows? <laughs> my husband would be so sad if he heard me say that. I hope this isn't being recorded. Um, but anyways, I kept thinking, that seems like so much what I'm going through, but I couldn't bring myself to think that something as horrible as they made that sound could be happening in a family like mine. So I pushed it out and moved on, and I didn't tell anybody, you know. And I've been speaking about this issue for a long time now, and I've realized so many times people place part of the blame on a victim for allowing abuse to happen, for being silent as long as I was, or being in an unhealthy dating relationship over a long stretch of time. They don't realize that an abuser seeks control, and they know how to silence their victims. And I remember growing up and being in my... Um, bedroom closet, just drying off after a shower, I'd wrap up in a, in a towel, run three feet across the hallway into my bedroom, and, and be drying off looking for something to wear, and I'd turn around, and my stepdad would be in my room looking at me, and I would get so mad. I would say, what are you get doing in here? Get out of my room, and he would say things like I was asking him to come in because I didn't lock the door. Or I was wearing only a towel through the hallway that this was somehow a sign that I wanted him to come in, and I hope it sounds so crazy to every one of you, but you know, hearing something like that time after time after time after time by my stepdad, who everybody loved and trusted, I thought I was wrong. Like, I had asked for this or deserved it. No one asks for abuse. No one deserves rape. Right? And so my story continued even though I grew up feeling like I couldn't talk about this stuff. My stepdad said he wanted us to be really close. He said he wanted it to be our little secret. He told me it was his responsibility to teach me these things, that all little girls go through this, just no one talks about it. He said it was normal. He said no one would ever believe me if I told because he was a popular guy. <laughs> I was just a little girl. So I felt so tormented as a kid, wanting to tell, not knowing what would happen if I did, not knowing who I could trust, if anyone would believe me. What would happen if they did believe me? You know, confused, afraid, silenced. My pain put me into hiding. I believed that there was no way out. But I had so many dreams for my life. I not only needed rescued, but I needed healing. And I needed to know that my story mattered, that I was not alone. Now, growing up, I, I always asked the question, where were you, God? You know, 
And I'll tell you that talking about my story and telling your story is the first step to healing. And it, it was really hard for me because I kept that secret for so long. But a year after my stepdad's suicide, I was 15 years old. It was the next summer. I kept my vow. I didn't even tell my best friend the truth yet. And I was invited to this Nazarene church camp in Sandusky, Ohio. And I don't know what church camp's like for y'all these days, but back when I went to church camp, they had a time of, um, well, first of all, we did this thing called pen pals. Now, I know you don't know what that is. We wrote with a pen and paper. It took like three days to get somebody a message like hieroglyphics or something like that so but you would write them and you would like fold it and put it in this thing you would lick it and stick it and there was like a square shaped sticker you put on the corner it was really weird anyways just listen because there's a point to this story so we would do that but the last day of camp they had this time of open mic where anybody could get up and tell like some cool story that god did that week there was one girl who came up and talked about the boyfriend god gave her at camp oh my god <laughs> girls come on girls it's just not, it's not good. It's not cute. It's not, none of that. Just don't do that. Um, so God did not give me a boyfriend at camp, and Chucky and I were struggling. So <laughs> at the time, I don't know what happened, but the Holy Spirit moved my little legs, and I got up, and I told my story for the first time in front of like 300 teens. It was super awkward, and I regretted every moment of it, but the reason I tell you this was because I went home, three days went by, and I was like, that was horrible. Everyone thinks I'm weird, all this stuff. On the third day, letters started coming to my mailbox. Oh, that's the other thing. You put it in a box, you put a flag up. I don't know. And it ends up where you wanted it to go. That's really weird. So anyways, I would go to my mailbox, and there would be letters and letters and letters from other teens at this camp telling me their stories. Thank you, Nicole, for your courage. I thought I was the only one. I, too, have been sexually abused, and I've always wanted to tell and so these people were finding the courage to say me too, because I had found the courage to tell my story first. And it was the same time I was wrestling with God, I was mad at him, I don't get it, but I know you're supposed to be this good dad, so instead of running away from you with my questions, I'm coming to you. I'm writing to you in my journal, and I'm pissed. But I want a relationship with you, I want to hear from you. So in the midst of all of this, I'm getting these letters I'm realizing that I'm not alone anymore. For years I thought I was the only one, the only one for sure that you know, played basketball, who was the homecoming queen, all these things. Definitely no one with a life like mine had been going through that. But then I was getting these letters realizing I wasn't alone. It was the same week. I'm fighting with God. I'm writing to him in my journal. And I opened my Bible and I came across this verse that totally changed my life. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of comfort. He comforts us in all of our troubles, so that we can comfort others in any trouble with the same comfort we are receiving from God. That blew my mind, because I knew God was comforting me, and I saw how he was using me, even at 15, even at broken, to write back and forth with these other kids at camp and offer them comfort as I was being comforted. Pain puts us into hiding, but purpose will call us out. So I continued on, and I realized that God was meeting me in my hiding place, telling me if I could just tiptoe out and do things afraid that he was going to use me for good. He was going to turn this ugly, nasty, shameful story into something beautiful. And if I could use my voice and tell my story, that he would help others find their freedom. 
You know, I realize that there's never going to be so much pain, so much evil in this world that God can't take it and turn it into something really, really good. Everyone here has a story, you know. But if we can take our pain and turn it into purpose, that can be part of our healing. So tell your secret. Tell your secret to someone you trust and let this be the beginning of your healing journey like it was for me. And if you're a friend, be that safe, open ear. You know, you don't have to have all the answers to enter into someone else's pain. People in pain just need to be heard and they need to be loved. That's what I received when I was a student here at ANC. As a basketball player, my team was such an important part of my healing community, even before I had found my voice to the point I did now. My friends here were able to be that healing place for me, to love me and to not look at my story and pity me, but to just be a safe place to look at me the same way and love me through it. And I remember when I was 15 years old, after that summer camp experience, deciding in my heart that I wanted to be a voice for the voiceless. I wanted God to use my story, but I still felt so stuck. I didn't know where to start, you know. Many of you might look at things in the world, and you might have a heart for, for social justice like me, but you feel like, oh my gosh, like how, how do I get there from here? You know, you might feel like me where it's like you feel like a mosquito in a nudist colony. You know, there's so much work to do, you don't know where to start, right? <laughs> but I've learned if you start with the one thing you can do. <laughs> because for me, it was like we all can do something, Right? And if you do the one thing that you can do, it might seem tiny, but that one little thing often activates the next thing. And then that will activate the next thing. And before you know what you're doing, this big thing that you never thought you could do, if only you had just started. You can always do the one thing. So I've been speaking publicly on this issue for many years now, um, and I started right out of college. But I started to see this trend. I wrote my book, Hush, and um, I started getting emails, and I started meeting students and people in churches after my events who were telling me that they not only related to me because they had been sexually abused in their home, but that actually was what led them to becoming victims of sex trafficking here in America. And I started meeting all of these victims of sex trafficking were saying they ran away. Nicole, you always wanted to run away, but I did. And when I ran away, that's when I met this guy who was promising me all these things, but ended up selling me for sex. And I got stuck in this lifestyle and addicted to drugs and all these things. And so I started to get this real heart for human trafficking and being a part of the solution to it. And so I didn't know where to start other than to just hear the stories and walk with these women and, and boys through their journey and, and encourage them and just show up in their lives and so then I just started to do the one thing that I really knew how to do, and that was pray. And I prayed for nine months, God, will you not only use me for the abuse, will you use me for the enslaved too? And nine months went by, and I got a phone call um, from a TV show in Dallas, Texas, asking me to go undercover with the film crew to the brothels of Cambodia. And it was there that God broke my heart. And I wanted to just share, we only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to share with you um, a video of a mom that I met there. Her name's Yem. I want the very best for them. Yem, mother of two, thought she found it. 
thinking that someone's going to take care of your kids and give them a better life than you can give them and then finding out that they're going through the most horrendous evil that could ever possibly happen. And it was the promise of a life she couldn't provide. What it meant was letting them go. What it became was something altogether different. Her oldest managed to make it back home, but almost unrecognizable from the abuse, and in a condition which quickly took her life. Yim's youngest daughter has neither been found nor heard from again. Sex trafficking has completely ruined her whole life, her family. She has nothing. She has no children here. She has two beautiful daughters, and all she has is the pictures to look at. We have to help her. No mom should ever have to face this. This mom is living it. We have to help her. So I came home from that trip, and I was so broken and so really shattered by what I saw and experienced. I actually went back to counseling. My first set of counseling actually happened here. It was very, very good for me my sophomore year. Um, but this was my next time of counseling. And um, through that, I realized that God will break our hearts for things, um, not to hurt us, but to grow us. And it was through those broken places in my heart that he began to shine light in and vision. And I realized that if we could beat the traffickers to villages like Yum's Village and educate them on the tricks of the traffickers, that we could save children from ever becoming sex slaves. And so that became my mission. And I started this new nonprofit just five years ago. Um, where that's the mission, is to stop sex trafficking before it starts by educating those who are most vulnerable. So that means in Cambodia, I've gone back every year um, there, and now it's expanded to other countries, and even in my hometown of Columbus, Ohio, where um, we love on teen runaways, because they're at highest risk in America of becoming victims of trafficking. And um, so it's, it's just been a really neat journey to see how God could take a story that I felt was so shameful and should have been remained in hiding for the rest of my life, but that he would take that story to something that became so much bigger than my own. And Yem's story is so much bigger than my own. And through our nonprofit, we actually were able to rescue her other daughter just two years ago and brought her back. And so that's just been really incredible. Um, but no matter what he breaks your heart for, um, just know that there's so much more purpose beyond that. No matter what you're in right now, no matter what's been done to you, no matter what you've done to someone else, God can use that and turn it into something so much, so much greater. And we have to see healing happen here on these kinds of campuses. You know, God's here. The administration cares or else they wouldn't let me talk to you today. They care about your story beyond the classroom. And we have to look beneath the surface in the lives around us. You know, we have to let people struggle. We have to give people hope that healing is possible and grace to grow through things. 
Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist, once said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I want to share one last clip. This was um, an interview I did after interviewing 10 sex slaves in um, locked up little cages, these 12-year-old little girls in Cambodia. And I want you to hear what I had to say, and then I'm just going to read an excerpt from my book, Hush, and then we'll dismiss. So this is my first time in Southeast Asia and um, my very first opportunity to come face to face with the victims of sex trafficking here. The girls that I met in the brothel um, really expressed so much of feeling trapped, feeling hopeless, feeling like there was no way out for them. And you know, I can just remember myself as a young girl being sexually abused by my stepdad over and over again as a child, feeling like there was no way out. There was, I had no voice. I had a secret to keep and there was nothing I could do about it. And these girls are living through the same thing day after day, you know, night after night. And I can just imagine how hopeless that felt. You know, I even asked one of them what help looked like. What would it look like to be helped out of this situation? And she couldn't even, she couldn't even come up with an answer because to her, there was no help. There was no option. That broke my heart because, you know, that's what we're here for. That's what we as Christians are here to do. We're, we're here to help people. You know, Jesus came to rescue these girls. And here she's telling me that she doesn't feel like she can be rescued, that this is what her purpose is in life. I feel like when I walked into those brothel rooms, that my life changed. You know, I've always asked God, ever since I got rescued from my situation, that if he could break my heart for what breaks his heart, that that was my ministry. And here I was sitting in a brothel room with these girls who have not been rescued. And God was answering my prayer. He was breaking my heart for what breaks his. And now my only answer is, you know, that I want to bring hope to these girls, that I want to bring rescue to these girls. They shouldn't be living through this. We can be the answer. We really can. I believe that. But we've got, we've got to become an army against this. The body of Christ could totally change the culture, could totally change the world when it comes to modern-day slavery. But we have to be willing to let our hearts be broken for these girls. Um, I'll be available in the back with my books. If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. And survivors will never know the truth that will set them free from the lies that keep them in bondage. Every time we bring sexual abuse into the light, we help prevent more abuse while we help its victims heal. Victims need their own voice to break free from their silent pain, but they also need your voice. They need my voice, and together our voices become one voice, one that rings loud and clear, speaking words of love, truth, validation, acceptance, comfort. Our voice will penetrate the darkness and expose sexual violence for exactly what it is. Our voice will lead wounded hearts to a safe, open place of healing. And as we speak out, our voice will reduce the risk of abuse for the next child and the next child and maybe your child. I'm not here asking for your sympathy. I'm asking for your strength. Thank you so much for listening to me today. And God bless you. I hope to see you throughout the day.
Thank you, Nicole. Would you stand with me and let me say a prayer of scripture over you and over us today? And as we close with the doxology, um, I just ask you again to allow, um, allow that time to be a seal on our time together. Would you remain where you are until we're finished with that prayer? Let me pray for us. Would you bow your heads? God, your word speaks to us today. What we heard is it's a difficult thing sometimes to share, difficult to hear, difficult to process. And so, God, we pray that you would be with us as we go through that. Now, this is what the Lord says to you. He who created you, he who formed you, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, because you are precious in my sight, you are honored, and I love you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.